Well, I want to invite you to find First Timothy in the Bible that you've got with you, First Timothy chapter 1. If, uh, if you're just joining us for the first time in this room or online, we're taking the first five Sundays of this year uh, to simply focus on the gospel. So five Sundays, five different looks at the gospel, all oriented around becoming more and more gospel people. So not only knowing and telling the gospel, not only those things, but trusting and knowing and loving and living the gospel and also telling it. So we're taking a very holistic look, a very comprehensive look at the gospel, wanting to become gospel people. And today, so we've already talked about trusting the gospel. Last Sunday, we talked about knowing the gospel. And today we come to the idea of loving the gospel. So now we're dealing with the realm of our affections, what we love. And the reality is that the gospel competes with other things for our affections, for our love. The reality is that our hearts, um, and I want to say this specifically and pointedly, the reality is that our hearts, and yes, your pastor's heart also, and your pastor's heart especially, grows cold in different seasons. I think when I was a little guy attending church, I had this idea that my pastor probably always loved God like 100%, and that God always had 100% of his heart. And I just want to tell you something you already know, and that's that your pastor gets a cold heart in different seasons of life, a cold heart towards God, a cold heart towards the gospel, and I need the renewal of the Holy Spirit, just like you do. The reason I tell you that is because I don't want you to feel like you're different somehow if you find yourself in different seasons of life with a a cold heart toward God and the gospel. It happens to me too. And so we come to the scriptures and say, well, how does a a real authentic love for God and the gospel get birthed in one's heart? Where does that come from? How, how does one love the gospel? Is it possible for the gospel to, to capture my whole life? And really, that's what we're talking about when I say love the gospel. I don't mean just a feeling. I mean, yes, the feeling, but not only the feeling of love. I mean, what we're after is the gospel capturing our whole life, a whole life embrace of the gospel. How does that happen to a person? Well, if we want to know how that might happen, there's no better person to look at than the Apostle Paul, of course. Paul, Paul who said, for me to live is Christ. Living was equated with Christ. For to me, to live is Christ. Paul, 
He wrote that to the Philippians. Paul, who wrote to the Corinthians and said, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. The gospel had completely taken over Paul's life. He loved it. He didn't just know the gospel and share the gospel. Paul loved the gospel. How did it happen? How did it take over his whole life? That's what we're trying to find out today. That's why we're in 1 Timothy, to try to figure out what did he know that made him love the gospel of Jesus Christ, okay? If you want the answer to that question, let's go. We're in the right passage. 1 Timothy, we're going to begin in verse 8, and we're going to read through verse 17, okay? If you're able, let's stand for the reading of the word in honor of God. 1 Timothy chapter 1, beginning in verse 8. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, As the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. All right, please be seated. What we're going to try to do is begin to notice the contours of Paul's heart. We're going to try to allow his writing to show us what his heart looks like. What do we see? What's observable? We're really only going to say two things. At a, at a high level about what we see. The first one is that we see a great sense of his own unworthiness. Remember that we're trying to figure out how the gospel had captured Paul's whole life and captured his affections completely, okay? And the first thing that's discernible here, at least the first thing that we're going to notice, is that he displays a great sense of his own unworthiness, and that will be obvious to you immediately. You saw that in verse 15. He calls himself the foremost of sinners. 
Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. At other places in his writing, he calls himself the least of the apostles. That's 1 Corinthians 15. At Ephesians 3, he calls himself the least of the saints. The least of the saints, the least of the apostles, the foremost of sinners. Three different phrases, three different letters, but the same undercurrent. Paul displays a great sense of his own unworthiness. Now, what is significant about that? How does that help us as we try to figure out why he loved the gospel so much? Well, I think it's helpful to us in two ways to notice this overwhelming sense of his own unworthiness. As we think about that reality in Paul's life, one thing that we can see is the cultivation of an identity. This is a a cultivated identity in Paul. If we take his statement here about being the foremost of sinners and we add it to the list of other places where Paul mentions mentions his own lowliness compared to others, we see that this line of thinking is, is not just a random thought he had when he was picking up his pen to write to Timothy right here. It was not a, a stray thought that came down in his letter that I should write that I'm the foremost of sinners. No, it was a consistent thought. It doesn't just appear here. It appears in all these other places as well. It was core to the way that Paul thought about himself. And so if our goal is to look at Paul's life of burning desire for the gospel and say, how can the gospel capture more of my affections, of my life, I've got to say on the basis of Paul's writing that it's okay and it's good to cultivate a sense of your own unworthiness. It's okay and it's good to feel in your heart before God that you just might be the foremost of sinners. Jesus seems to make this very point, seems to make the exact same point in the little parable that he tells about the two worshipers at the temple. Do you remember what the Pharisee said about himself? Thank you that I'm not like all these other people. And then He says, but notice the tax collector that comes and standing far off, he beats his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus said, I tell you that this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. That's Luke 18. It's good to cultivate a sense of your own unworthiness. Now, there is such a thing as morbid introspection. There is such a thing as dwelling so much on one's own sin that the the glory and grace and joy of the redemption of Christ is just obscured in your life, okay? That's a real thing. So where's the line? Where's the line between cultivating a healthy sense of your own unworthiness and on the other hand, this morbid introspection where we're dwelling on our own sin. Where's, where's the line between those two things? Well, Robert Murray McShane, the celebrated Scottish preacher who died at age 29, long time ago, 19th century, 
You'll recognize his name. Some of you use his Bible reading plan. McShane suggests a ratio for us. And he says, for every one look that you take at yourself, take 10 looks at Christ. That's the, the ratio that he suggested. And that could, that could be helpful here. So one look at myself, 10 looks at Christ. Now, it's not a formula. It's, something, it's not something we should observe strictly, but we get his point. We should look much more to Christ than to ourselves. And I think the only thing that I would add to that is that when we consider ourselves and our own condition before God and our own unworthiness, it need not be a long look, but it should be a true look. It should be an accurate look. Accuracy is what we're going for. And that's what Paul displays here. He doesn't dwell on it, but he he does state it. I am the foremost of sinners. And his writings taken together show that he had cultivated his identity. Now, none of this has been controversial, okay? I, I don't think you're having a hard time with what we're hearing here, but this, this next thing could be tough. We see that he had cultivated an identity, but we also see in this view of himself as unworthy, we also see a great charity toward others. And I'll explain what I mean. There's a reason that I began the reading in verse 8. You may have thought, like, why did we start the reading there? The real meat of what Paul is saying about himself comes later once we get to verse 12. But there's a reason we started in verse 8. The reason we started there and read this long list of different kinds of sin and sinners is so we could understand when we get to verse 15 who Paul is putting himself below. Who is he putting himself below when he writes that he, not they, is the foremost of sinners? The law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and the profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. That's Paul writing. And then a few sentences later, also Paul, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, the foremost of whom are all the people that I just listed. No. But this is what the scripture says. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Paul puts himself at the moral bottom of this list. And notice that he doesn't write, of whom I was the foremost, but of whom I am the foremost. Let me ask you a question. Whose sin against God is worse? The person who sins in ignorance of who God is or the person who sins knowing full well the grace of God? It's going to be really tough to love the gospel while you're looking down on all those people. Here's 
How do you view yourself relative to other people and relative to the sins of other people? Does it match Paul's view? If we really want to become people who trust, know, love, live, and tell the gospel, we have to get over ourselves and stop putting people in tears. Sin tears, political tears, theological tears. Somehow, when we do that, really strange thing, when I do that, I always end up at the top somehow. Isn't that funny? I always end up at the top when I put people in tears. Their sin versus mine, their views versus mine. Somehow, my beliefs always end up being the most acceptable ones. And my sins always end up being the most understandable and reasonable ones. And pretty soon, I'm looking down on everybody else. And all I'm showing you is that Paul is looking up at everybody else. Everybody else. And I wonder if that's part of the reason that he loved the gospel. And why we struggle to love the gospel. After all, who really needs the gospel of Jesus that bad? If you're on top of the world, it's tough to love a gospel that you just don't need that much. Or at least don't need as much as that other person. Trying to make a blueprint of the contours of Paul's heart. See how he thinks, how he thinks about himself, how he thinks about others, how he thinks about God, and trying to discover how this great love developed in his life for Jesus Christ and his gospel. First thing we see is that he displays this great sense of his own unworthiness. Okay? It's the first major strand that's visible here. And now we'll go to the second one. So he He displays a great sense of his own unworthiness. Paul displays also a great mercy consciousness. He displays a great mercy consciousness here. In his writing here, it's obvious that mercy had taken hold of his heart. Sometimes mercy and grace can be difficult to distinguish, so let's distinguish Mercy is God's free choice to forbear and not punish when punishment is deserved. Mercy is God's free choice to forbear and not punish when punishment is deserved. Grace is a little bit different Grace is God's free choice to pour out riches on the sinner instead of pouring out his wrath. See, mercy just removes punishment but doesn't really leave us anything. Grace is the pouring out of everything that we could never deserve, everything that we ill deserve. All of these riches in Christ come to us instead of wrath. See, God hasn't just shown us mercy and forbeared punishment. He's also lavished all these riches on us, and that's grace, because we've done everything to not deserve it. Of course, the two are tied together. In a salvific sense, they always go together, mercy and grace. 
Both of those are active on the believer, but they are distinguishable. The thing that Paul makes special note of here in verse 13 and verse 16 is God's mercy toward him. God's forbearance and not giving him the punishment that his sins deserve, but laying that punishment instead on Jesus Christ. That's the gospel proper that we talked about last week. Christ died for our sins. So mercy is very much a theme of Paul's writing here, and he displays what we could call a great mercy consciousness in at least these three ways. So just three points about the way Paul is looking at mercy here, okay? First of all, he knew he had received mercy. He says that twice, verse 13 and verse 16. Same phrase, but I received mercy. I was a blasphemer, persecutor, insolent opponent, but I received mercy. That's verse 13. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost, but I received mercy. Verse 16. Paul is writing about his salvation experience, what it meant for him to be saved. And in so doing, he uses the language of mercy. I've been going to church services since I was an infant. Maybe I've been aware of what's going on in the room since I was six. Been in all kinds of Bible studies, Sunday morning services, Sunday evening services, Wednesday night services, Bible studies all over the place, seminary for four years, internships, pastoring churches now for eight years, not once, not ever, in all of the times that I have heard people share their testimony of how they came to faith in Christ, never have I heard someone use the language of mercy and say anything like, God showed me mercy. much more common to hear people talk about what they did. I went forward. I made a decision. I accepted Christ. I got right with God. I believed. I accepted. All those things are true. All those things happened. But do we have any awareness, any consciousness of I received mercy? If I asked you the question, what did you receive when you were saved? How would you answer that question? What did you receive? I think the common answers would be, well, I received peace. I received forgiveness of sins. I received eternal life. I received joy. I received a right standing before God. I received a new family. I received a new identity. All those things are true. When Paul describes his salvation, when he reflects on that experience, he describes it in this way. I received mercy. Brothers and sisters, that's what it means to be saved. Being saved is a passive idea. It's a merciful initiation 
toward the sinner by God, we experience his saving, his mercy. Look at verse 15. Who's active in verse 15? The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Christ is active. He saves. We experience saving. That's our experience. We experience saving. We receive something. Paul's saying, Christ did the saving work. I received mercy. We're exploring the contours of Paul's heart and trying to figure out how does he think about his experience? What's happened to him that makes him love the gospel so much? What does he know? We're learning about how he thinks about his own salvation experience and what kind of things he understood that contributed to his great love of the gospel. So we note first his mercy consciousness. He simply knows that he's received mercy. The second thing we know from observing his writing is that he knew God's mercy toward him was personal and purposeful. He knew God's mercy toward him was both personal and purposeful. Where do we see that? We see that in verse 16. But I received mercy for this reason. It's a purpose. That in me as the foremost... That's personal. I receive mercy for this reason that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display, see here's the purpose, might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. He regarded God's mercy as both personal, God saved him for a reason, personal and purposeful. I just wanted to ask you, did you know that God's mercy toward you in particular is not random? Did you know that it is a personal and purposeful mercy toward you, you in particular? Did you think that God had no particular interest or plan in saving you? Let me just ask you a question on the basis of this text. Did God have anything in mind when he saved Paul? Did he have a plan or a purpose for which Paul was an integral part? Paul says, yes, he did. Paul knows in the depth of his being that when God extended mercy toward him in particular, it was for a reason. He knew that in saving him, God demonstrated how patient and kind he is to even save this one, this Saul of Tarsus. In so doing, the perfect patience of Jesus Christ was on display as an example for us to see that no one is beyond the mercy of God. If God could save this one, then no one is beyond his mercy. God wanted to save Saul of Tarsus, him in particular because he wanted to show the world something. Do you think it's different for you? 
Do you think that God had a purpose in saving Paul in particular, but just let you opt in to being saved? but didn't really care that much, no particular interest in mind for you, that God's just looking for stuff for you to do right now because you've opted in? Is that how you think about your salvation? Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. There are good works, Christian, that God has prepared in particular for you, that you should walk in them. There are billions and billions of perfections in Jesus Christ, and God has certain ones in mind to display in you. You have been created and shown mercy specifically and in particular, not randomly, so that you can display those perfections One of the most moving things that I have ever witnessed, this was about seven years ago, at church, sitting in the auditorium, just like you're sitting now, looking up at a stage, and it was time for special music, the church we were attending. This was in in Dallas. Now, I've got an uncle who had Down syndrome, so this, this gets at me, okay? But this, this young man, this young man, 12 or 13 years old, came out, and it was special music time, and he had Down syndrome. And for about 30 seconds, he gave us everything he could in his name is wonderful. I don't think every word was included. I, I, it, it was, it was not a complete performance. The performance was not in tune. There was not a dry eye in the whole auditorium. That young man will probably never preach a sermon, probably won't go to Bible college or get a, go to seminary, get a degree, but what I want you to know is that he displayed in those 30 seconds more courage and more of the glory of God than I ever will. I'm still talking about it. I'll never be able to forget it. 30 seconds, a flash of glory from that young man who might have had every reason to look up at God and say, why did you make me like this? Like, why, why can't, why don't I have all the faculties that everybody else has? Like, there's stuff that I can't do that all these other people can do. And instead of saying that to God, his testimony was, his name is wonderful. And that displays a perfection of Jesus Christ. Jesus, who had every reason to say, Father, why have you given me this stewardship? Why am I the one who has to go through this? I the perfect one. If this cup can pass, let it pass from me. Instead, Christ looked up to the Father and said, he is trustworthy, he is good. I do this to show the world that I love the Father. This young man put that perfection of Christ on display. 
And I'm saying to you that God's purpose for you is the same. That you have not randomly stumbled into the gospel. And that God is not indifferent to your presence with him. And if we want to understand Paul's thinking in his life, we have to understand that he knew he'd been shown mercy for a reason. And so he embraced that reason and that purpose of God, and it became his life. And could it be true that our problem and our cold heart toward God and toward the gospel comes from this sense of no purpose and no realization that mercy has been shown to us for any reason in particular. We're just here. The last thing we want to notice is really simple. It's just that all this consciousness of mercy produced um, praise. That's verse 17. Dwelling on mercy this long, this mercy consciousness of Paul erupted into his sentence of praise. To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, only God be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. You know that we praise what we love, don't we? He erupts into praise because he loves the one that he's praising. We, we love a restaurant, so we praise it. We love a girl, so we praise her. We love a movie, so we praise it. Paul loves God. He loves the gospel, so he praises All we're noticing is that he got to where we want to get. He got to an authentic expression of love for God. It came forth naturally. Paul's not doing a homework assignment here. He's not writing this because he has to. If that's where we want to get to an authentic, natural love for God and the gospel... We've just noticed how Paul walked through it and how we got there. Deeply seated awareness of his own personal need for mercy. I need the gospel. Deeply seated awareness of the personal and purposeful nature of mercy. The gospel has come to me in particular and has come to me for a purpose. There are surely a lot of things that go into developing a cold heart toward God. But surely three of them are believing that we're not that bad. We're saved by a God who's not that particular or purposeful. A God that's not that lovable. We're not that bad. We're saved by a God who's not that particular or purposeful. A God that's not that lovable. And I think there's good evidence that this is more or less what most, most Christians walk around with in their hearts and their minds, even if we wouldn't admit it out loud. Paul's response in 1 Timothy 1 is, yes, we are that bad. Yes, God is that particular and purposeful. And yes, God is that lovable. Now, I've been talking to Christians And if you are not a Christian, you know that you're not a Christian, you need to know three things before we leave the room. room. First of all, God has not promised any of us another hour of life, but he has promised that we will all die. Hebrews 9.27, just as it is appointed to man to die once, and after that comes judgment. 
second thing you need to know is that your need for mercy could not be greater. You're on this list, this list that we read earlier. I'm on this list, and you're on this list. And you, when you die, you will stand before that judgment, and you will be found guilty. God will pronounce the sentence of condemnation against you because of your sins, and you will enter into a terrifying and never-ending season of judgment. And for you, there is a real reason to fear death. You should fear death. If you are heading into that eternity without Christ, there's every reason for you to be terrified. The third thing that you need to know is that God has promised mercy to everyone who looks on and believes in his son, Jesus. Not just said that it's possible for you or that he might consider you. He has promised it to you. His mercy is promised to you in a believing look at his son, Jesus, who has taken the punishment for sin. And you need not fear death. Death for you can be like it was for Paul. Wow. To live is Christ, to die is gain. It was gain. Father, we love you. We confess uh, our cold hearts toward you. Thank you that we have one to one such as Paul to, to study, to learn from. We know that he wasn't perfect. <laughs> he admitted he was the worst. It was the furthest thing from perfection that there was. Yet there was this great love for you in his heart for the church and for his protege Timothy and so he writes it all out and here it is for us to, to learn from and put ourselves just a little bit lower under the scriptures and under other people think on this great theme of the mercy that's come to us in Jesus and so I, I pray that the scriptures would be effective uh, both for those who have believed and for those who have not yet believed We pray in Jesus' beautiful name, amen.